Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Dan Held, who is the growth lead at Kraken. We talk about how Dan went from a career in finance to doing startups, how he learned marketing and growth hacking, and the ethical limits of all coins. Dan also tells us about the importance of branding and user experience. Dan Held, how are you doing, man? Doing well, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on. How are things these days? I think you're in San Francisco, right? Like, oh, it's, <laughs> it's pretty bad, man. It's kind of like the apocalypse out here in California because not only do we have COVID, but we've also mm-hmm. got fires to where I couldn't go outside for a couple of days because the smoke was so bad. I mean, you know, of course, people are going to feel that uh, wearing masks for COVID is somewhat controversial. You know, we don't know everything about like transmission with the virus. So some folks think that wearing it outside is a little bit excessive. But with smoke, you actually have to wear N95 masks uh, due mm. to like how fine it is. And so, you know, if you wanted to go to the store, like, for example, with COVID, if you're in the middle of a park, you could take off your mask. If no one was around you, you would feel very comfortable doing that. But with the fires now, you can't even do that. So, you know, it felt very restrictive and not a lot has been opened up. You know, we still don't have indoor dining or bars open. So it's. Yeah, it's pretty rough, man. We were the first ones to go in and we're one of the last ones to come out. So it's been a long 2020. Oh, man. Yeah, I can't imagine. And like, I keep hearing about all of these people leaving San Francisco. I'm in Austin and I am seeing California license plates everywhere. What the hell, man? You're you're (laughs) sending all your people here. Hey, I'm a Texan, man. Don't, these aren't my people. (laughs) I'm going to eventually come back to Texas, but you know, enjoying the beautiful weather and the tech scene out here. So someday I'll make it back to the homeland. Well, if you have to inhale smoke every time, I don't know. You might have to come back soon. Anyway, just for our listeners that aren't familiar with you, what's your background? What did you do before you got into Bitcoin? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, in terms of, I think a lot of people perceive me as, oh, it's Bitcoin Dan Held. Like, he's always been about Bitcoin. (laughs) And I've been about Bitcoin for a long time now. I mean, eight years, you know, since I really got serious about it. But before that, kind of like a little bit of a TLDR on, on me and who I am. Grew up in Texas, grew up in Dallas, kind of had your quintessential suburban experience, played foot, high school football. We won state. I wasn't very good, by the way, but our team was really, <laughs> our team was really good. And in Texas, you know, if you know Texas football, like Texas is all about football. And in high school, it's like a little mini religion. So Friday Night Lights isn't too far off from what reality is in Texas. So look, kind of your quintessential lifestyle that way, you know, like suburban Texas football sort of style. And then went to college and started to, you know, I was studying finance in undergrad. So at Mays University at Texas A&M and was in school during the 2008 financial crisis. And in that moment, I realized that my professors, the books I was reading and everyone on TV had no idea what was going on with the financial <laughs> system. And so really kind of shook my, my trust model, right? Like I these individuals I was supposed to trust. And then you realize that this whole system was bullshit. (laughs) Mm. And I started to read blogs like Zero Hedge. And I know Zero Hedge, you know, some people might be like, oh, they're a little pessimistic or fringe. I don't think they're wrong, but Zero Hedge also broke news for a couple different really, really big topics. Like they covered high frequency trading, spoofing, and 
some other really big areas where not many people have talked about it back in 2008 and nine. So Zero Hedge was, you know, a big influence there in terms of like challenging the status quo. And then I was, of course, an Austrian sort of economics guy, like seeing, you know, these huge policy errors again and again and again by the Fed definitely reinforce that a gold standard is the way to move forward with, you know, with an economy. And then graduated college, heard about Bitcoin and, you know, just really, as soon as I heard there's a 21 million, you know, fixed supply, I thought that was genius. Uh, to me, that was the breakthrough was the monetary policy. It was a genius monetary policy breakthrough. Choosing an inflation rate is an impossible task that constantly opens up the social consensus for manipulation or politics, you know, because there, if you're constantly debating what the appropriate rate of inflation is, then that introduces an attack vector. Anyways, that's what drew me to Bitcoin. And since then worked in tech, but yeah, just had kind of some humble, you know, Southwest beginnings kind of stumbled my way into Bitcoin, you know, had a bit of a finance background and then I made my way out to San Francisco. So that's, that's kind of the, the background before I got into Bitcoin. Yeah, you've obviously done a lot of different things. And I find this with almost everyone in Bitcoin is that they had a life before and then Bitcoin sort of changes it. You're now known more as kind of a marketing guy, which is interesting because you just described how you were this finance guy and somehow you made a shift to marketing. How'd that happen? Yeah, so I uh, so I was an analyst at a small investment firm in Dallas right out of college. And then they relocated me to San Francisco to help them open up their West Coast portfolio. Mm. And while I was out here, I had a roommate who was an iOS developer, and I started to get plugged into the Bitcoin meetup scene. And the mm. Bitcoin meetup scene back in 2013, January 2013, only had 12 people. It was <laughs> Brian and Fred from Coinbase, Charlie Lee. You had Jed McCaleb from Ripple Stellar. And, and then, well, I mean, Andreas was out here at the time and Roger. They didn't pop by these meetups very much. I think they just went to the South Bay ones, like in Sunnyvale mm. at Plug and Play Center. And then, you know, we, it was essentially like this, like really core group. And March 2013 hit. People forget that there was two bubbles in 2013. There was March 2013 when it went from 10 to 260. And then there was also the like December 2013 bubble that went from like 100 to 1200. Mm. And so in the first bubble in 2013, the price spiked. There was over 100 people that came to the next meetup. It was really exciting to see all these people interested. And I was super thrilled as well because I had bought some Bitcoin and I'm like, oh, this is cool. My net worth just went up quite a bit. And in that moment, you know, when Bitcoin is very volatile and the price is spiking, there was at the time there was no app that had real time Bitcoin price information, which was nuts. So I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I wasn't a product guy. I wasn't a tech guy. But I sat down and I knew enough in Photoshop and I spent a ton of time looking at other apps designs and looking at how great products are built and built the most popular mobile app in the crypto space in 2013 called ZeroBlock. Mm. So I, I just became obsessed with solving my own problems. And a lot of great products are built that way. You go about solving your problem and it turns out a lot of other people have that problem as well. Now, did I approach it with a formula or like a mental model or a framework that is like, was really robust? No. You know, that's the funny thing is that, you know, I just was obsessed with solving this problem and I wanted to build an elegant, simple experience to do it. Now, for example, you know, people might go, oh, that was just random, you know, random luck, which I think a lot of that is, but as well, even most product people in Silicon Valley still don't grok some of the fundamentals of what it takes to build a great product. I think obsession 
is one of those. So you really have to be obsessed with the product, obsessed with solving customer problems. And simplicity is something that I really, really like. So when it comes to my own products, those are things I really strive for because with simplicity, you reduce technical debt and design debt. You also increase your conversion rate or activation rate. So when people download the app for the first time and then try it out, if you remove all the friction from the moment you know that they've landed in the product to the moment where they discover why it's valuable to them, you've now given your best shot at having them activate as a customer. So now they go, ah, aha, I get why zero block is useful because it shows me the real-time price of Bitcoin. You know, I didn't throw a sign-up form in front of them before they reached that moment. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't ask them for their birth date. I, I just showed them what the hell it was all about. So that was more accidental at first, but later on I realized like simplicity is actually really, really hard. It's easy to make products complex. It's hard to make products simple. Yeah, I still remember seeing this cartoon from a while back where, you know, I was working at a at a healthcare software company and they said, okay, here's Google and it's literally just like one box where you just type something. Here's like the Apple iPod and it's literally just like one button and a circle. Here's your crappy app and it's got 30 fields with like all kinds of things that you have to put in. And uh, <laughs> I was like, yep. That's right. Yeah, it is really hard to do something simple. But yeah, that whole thing about product creation, it really is about product market fit, isn't it? Yeah, it's all about solving problems for your customer. And I think that's just, it's funny because that's all we should really learn in school is like the basis of capitalism is about solving problems. You take capital, you deploy it into something you think hypothetically should solve a problem. If I think people want hot dogs on the street corner, then I'm going to go buy hot dogs. And my hypothesis is that people want hot dogs and I'll go down there. And if they want it, then I'll make money. If they don't, then I'll lose money. And so capitalism is about this efficiency mechanism of solving problems. I mean, that's what capitalism does is we have everything around us from planes, trains, cars, food, computers, those are all built to solve problems, to make humans' lives easier and more fulfilling. Hmm. Yeah. And this is something that's come up in Bitcoin over and over again, but you've been kind of a critic of the UX around Bitcoin. And I think for good reason. Can you explain what your ideal workflow would look like and what's kind of missing right now? Yeah, I definitely stirred the pot there a little bit. <laughs> Look, I've been in Bitcoin for eight years. I've seen a lot happen at <laughs> mm -hmm. time. Man, I didn't, it was really confusing back in 2012 when I first started to play around with it. And honestly, I'm just amazed I didn't lose all my Bitcoin through a scam, through not storing them properly. People forget that, you know, the seed backup phrase, the 12 to 24 word mnemonic, that was a relatively new invention. I think that was 13 or 14. Yeah, Nima, uh, BIP39, I think it was 2014, yeah. Yeah, it was 14. So, I mean, before that, you know, there was also, it wasn't crypto steel or anything like that, like the metal backups. Mm. So, most people had paper backups, which I don't know about you, but pay, having your, you know, entire net worth on a piece of paper as a backup is a little bit intense, a little scary. So, you know, the UX in the space has improved tremendously over time. And I think that the, if we were to boil down my arguments and the reason why it was controversial in the Bitcoin community, I'm not sure if it'd be controversial outside of the Bitcoin community. I think a lot of folks have gotten, you know, a lot of people in Bitcoin feel negatively towards people who come in and criticize Bitcoin development. And 
I feel like the only way that we can improve upon Bitcoin is if we take a critical look at ourselves and examine how we both market it and make it easy to use. Now, I don't disagree with some people who were, you know, really strong. A lot of people, I think, misconstrued my argument, which was, I believe that there's a spectrum of perfect UX and where we are now. And I don't think we'll ever achieve that state of perfect UX. I just think we should keep iterating and making it better and keep making it better, you know, as much as we can over time. And, you know, I think some of the folks that I rubbed the wrong way interpreted me saying like, oh, Bitcoin sucks or like core development sucks or they don't, you know, like, so they felt that I was saying that. Plus they felt that I was advocating to make Bitcoin so easy that it would undermine trust or belief and understanding of how Bitcoin works and why it's valuable. And I don't think I was, <laughs> you know, I think that was a little bit weird to see people frame it that way because I, you know, there's a spectrum of people engaging with Bitcoin, right? Like some individuals will buy Bitcoin and hold it in their Revolut account or Robinhood account or some, you know, some custodial method that where they can't even withdraw their coins. And you know, some a lot of Bitcoiners believe that if you fully conveyed the idea of Bitcoin, that no individual would choose that path. But, you know, we really can't stop folks from trying out these other solutions. In my perfect world, everyone would do non-custodial. Non-custodial, they would learn about Austrian economics. They would understand where money comes from. They would understand monetary policy. They would really be able to dig in and grok all the nuances behind Bitcoin and why it's valuable and why it's, I think, one of the greatest inventions in humankind history. But most people aren't going to do that. Like, we're all obsessed about it. And I think that's a good thing. So when it comes to UX, I see user experience, like improving user experience as a spectrum of allowing more people to enter into Bitcoin. I believe that we should continue to push them, even if we make it very easy for them to own Bitcoin. We would always want to continue to push them towards education of why Bitcoin matters, of how to manage their own private keys, et cetera. But I would push back against some people out there who believe. And so this was a weird narrative that I encountered, which was that people said we shouldn't make Bitcoin any easier because then we dilute the messaging or we dilute the learning. You know, that individuals should have to go through this like friction in order to become a Bitcoiner. That was really weird because, and how I challenged that was I asked them, okay, at what moment did Bitcoin become easy enough? Like, if you feel that way, was it after BIP39? Like, was that the moment? <laughs> you know, and then none of them could answer it. None of them could come up with a reasonable answer as to like, when was the moment that Bitcoin became easy enough? And like I said before, it's a gradient. Like, it's always becoming easier and easier to hodl and understand Bitcoin. And also people forget that the content, like on the marketing side, the content in this space was really poor back in the day. I mean, Turd Meester was like the best writer in the space. Him and Andreas were like the top two guys in Tur. Tur on the economics side, you know, being the Austrian economics guy, he was the first piece of content I ever shared with my dad. So Tur, I've got a ton of respect for him, but people forget that like, Understanding and like, I don't know if you've ever seen old how Bitcoin works videos like on YouTube mm -hmm. from like 2013. Mm -hmm. Like, it was pretty rough. There wasn't a lot of effort, you know, coming up with simple, digestible narratives to understand Bitcoin. And now we've got dozens and hundreds of great content creators that help people understand why Bitcoin's valuable. And then we've got hundreds of companies working on better and better user experiences. So, I'm merely here to say that, like, I want to bring in as many people as I can into Bitcoin. 
I'm going to try to make it as simple to understand and easy to use as possible. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Mm. Yeah. Part of uh, learning about marketing and getting people interested in something is figuring out why people are attracted to it in the first place. Because if you don't get them through that front door, none of this other stuff matters. So just a general question for you. Why do you think people get into Bitcoin? What's your sense? Yeah, I think that, and this is what a lot of Bitcoiners hypothesize, is that most people come in from number go up. I agree. It's an incredibly strong viral loop, which Satoshi actually hypothesized this would happen before Bitcoin had any value. So Satoshi wrote essentially that he essentially describes FOMO, where he's like, as the price goes up, more people become aware of Bitcoin and then buy in anticipation of the price going higher, which then raises the awareness. And he's totally right. Just the pure price speculation alone, the bubbles create enough attention that that really builds the next, I would say, like if you think about hodlers through time, through like Bitcoin price time, you're sort of creating floors of believers, right? Like the hodlers are these core believers in Bitcoin. And through each market cycle, you've got people that come in for the speculation, but stay for the sound money. And that's how Bitcoin progresses. And so that's a predominant user acquisition method for Bitcoin is the speculative bubbles. So I definitely think that like, you know, through price speculation alone, that is probably the strongest pull into Bitcoin. And I perceive the marketing or the content that we all put out and the user experiences as merely a conversion rate. So when people come in and speculate, how many of them convert to becoming a long-term hodler? Well, if there was no content of why Bitcoin mattered or why Bitcoin's important, then they might just leave as soon as the price dips. But if they fully, if they buy Bitcoin and now they're mentally, you know, mentally focused on Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin and they start to go, okay, well, what is this thing that I bought? Then they start to dig into the fundamentals. And if we can improve that conversion rate, then we build a stronger floor of hodlers, which means maybe we have less intense dips in the future. If more people who bought Bitcoin during these speculative manias, if they all grokked and understood Bitcoin, then why would we ever have a dip? Mm. Yeah, it is interesting thinking about it as sort of like a continuous sales funnel where you get them in the door, maybe they bought it, but that's not the end of the cycle. They, you have to continue almost selling to them and get them deeper into the funnel until they're all about self-sovereignty or something. Totally, totally. And that's where I think each Bitcoiner, we all play a part. There's some Bitcoiners who are a little bit more technical. Well, they're further down the funnel. They take the casual Bitcoiner who's like, oh yeah, Bitcoin's like gold 2.0. And maybe converts them into like running a full node and maybe doing coin joins. And, you know, you've got great folks in the Bitcoin community who champion those different things. And so, yeah, I think neither position of like being closer to the top of the funnel or to the bottom is less or more worthy. I think they're all very important positions. It's just more of perspective over like what top of the funnel folks try to do. I think a lot of the bottom of the funnel folks are like, hey, I'm in the weeds and I see like, you know, if we all don't run our own full node, then how can you be sure around certain assurances of the monetary policy, supply, et cetera. Also, like you could have issues where the government shuts down centralized services and those are all valid and 100% why you should run your own full node. But I think they forget to zoom out sometimes and they, I think there's a bit of criticism from the bottom of the funnel or further down the funnel for content creators with the ones at the top, like for example, Pomp. I think, you know, some of the more hardcore Bitcoiners don't really respect him as much. And I think Pomp has done a phenomenal job. Like, 
he has to be able to translate Bitcoin's narrative to hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And in doing that, you know, you can't have all the nuances of like running a full node included on your CNBC appearance, right? It's just not going to be, the audience is just not going to be receptive to that. And Pomp, I mean, Pomp got, what do you got, got Jim Cramer to buy Bitcoin? <laughs> Didn't that happen this week? I'm not paying attention to that, but that wouldn't surprise me because I did see something about him and Jim Cramer. Yeah, so maybe, you know, you sort of like Pomp hands off the baton to maybe Marty Bent. And Marty Bent can hopefully, you know, maybe Jim Cramer will start to, he'll subscribe to Marty Bent's uh, newsletter and then become more and more hooked. So that's, you know, I think each, it's kind of like, yeah, it's like a relay race and each Bitcoiner is, that generates content is essentially trying to hand off the, you know, is focused on one slice of that funnel, whether it's like introducing people to Bitcoin or turning them into hardcore hodlers. And, you know, we're all, we're all part of the machine. Mm. Yeah. And you emphasize this content creators because they really are sort of like the main marketing arm of Bitcoin right now. Like, what would you say are the marks of a really effective content creator within Bitcoin? I would say engagement for any content creator about any topic. It's do people enjoy reading your content, listening to your content, watching your content and engage with it? You know, that's where I think a lot of Bitcoiners will go, oh, my content is more pure or more ethical or more, I guess, closer to purity. Yeah, like more pure purity, some sort of like degree of correctness. And at the end of the day, I'm like, all that matters is if people engage with the content. No one cares if your piece of content is subjectively better than someone else's if zero people read it. So, you know, I think when it comes to content creation, like your KPIs are engagement. Are you, I don't, when people think about content, they're like, oh, I generate content. I generate content, but you're not really doing that. You're generating content for your audience. You know, do I personally like making super pumpy one to two line tweets every day? Like, is that my preferred style of communication? Not necessarily. Does it get me engagement? Yes. So, <laughs> you know, that's where I'm generating content for my audience, not the other way around. And, and I think too, like when we look at, so you've got engagement as like your core metric, your core KPI, but then there's like really golden moments. Uh, one happened to me this week that was really, really fun. I don't know how many other people have been watching the MicroStrategy news around with uh, Michael Saylor, the CEO, buying Bitcoin, buying $400 million worth of Bitcoin. But I got a shout out. Michael Saylor on Pomp's podcast said, you know, I appreciate these folks for helping me understand Bitcoin. And he named off me, which was really cool to see. I talk about Bitcoin all the time, but you rarely kind of see that validation like, oh, I actually changed someone's mind about Bitcoin. Like, you know that you're changing a lot of minds about Bitcoin, but to see it impact someone at that level and that that impact of my content, you know, I had one small piece of influence over convincing this, you know, publicly traded company CEO to buy $400 million worth of Bitcoin. I mean, that's pretty fucking cool. And it's a direct validation that Bitcoin marketing works. Hmm. Yeah. And well, this is a question that I've always had to marketers, which is that it's easy enough to measure engagement. You know how many views something had or click-throughs or something like that. How do you really measure whether or not it's actually affected opinion? Because I could put out a tweet that just says hashtag Bitcoin, and I'm sure I would get like 500 likes, but <laughs> that doesn't necessarily like change anything or like it's not necessarily lasting. Whereas, you know, a tweet that's very thoughtful and gets somebody to think of Bitcoin in a new way, 
might only get 100 likes, but it might get those 100 people to actually go buy Bitcoin. Like, how do you figure that out? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we look at top of the funnel, you've got, you know, if we look at different metrics, so if we go to the top of the funnel, we could look at impressions. And so on Twitter, I'm sure you look at your analytics and you look at your impression count and you're like, wow, that was a lot of impressions. Now, how many of those impressions actually influence someone to go take an action? That's really tough. We do have metrics on individual channels. So whether you're talking about Bitcoin on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, email, you've got different other metrics that quantify engagement. So you'll have like people that clicked on the link. You'll have watch or view time or listen time. And these are other metrics that could quantify engagement. Now, you know, if we want to boil that all down to singular metric of like, how many people did you convert into Bitcoin? You could probably do, I mean, at Kraken, we certainly look at this, which is, you know, we have attribution links to where we can attribute installs or signups to a specific campaign. If we run a Facebook ad, we want to know how many signups we got from that Facebook ad. And ultimately, we can track that all the way through to a transaction, the first trade, the first time they bought Bitcoin. So with that, with exchanges or brokerages, you know, I'm assuming River and Cash App also do this. When they run marketing campaigns, they can attribute the installs or signups and trades all the way back to the deployment of marketing spend or an organic, you know, free campaign that they launch. So with that, they would actually, you know, if we want to use buying Bitcoin as like the ultimate sort of conversion metric here, like that's our objective, we can actually track that. I mean, exchanges do that and brokerages do that on a daily basis. Hmm. Yeah, that would be interesting to get for something like a full node install or, you know, participate in a coin join. Unfortunately, that, of course, has some privacy. implications. <laughs> <laughs> that one's a little trickier. <laughs> yeah. But you mentioned something before, and it occurred to me that you have made a lot of content. And the thing about your content that I think I appreciate a lot, it's pretty timeless. You have a quality to your articles where you can sort of read it a few years from now. And it's not like there's nothing that would preclude you to from knowing that it was written three years ago. And that sort of like timelessness it seems like a very critical part of really effective marketing, because if it's only popular because you did it for a short amount of time and, you know, you happen to put in the right buzzword or something, that's not nearly as valuable as something that lasts through a long period. Yeah. Totally. It's, I think a lot of people, when they, you know, go about getting their personal brand a little bit more visible, they don't really think about it from like a marketer's perspective. They just go, oh, I'm saying something that my audience likes, but I approach it from a very analytical, a very like calculated perspective. So what I call my content is evergreen content. The content will always be green. And the reason why I do that isn't just because I like to write content that is permanently relevant it's an ROI calculation. If I invest time to write an article and it's only relevant for a couple months, then my return or my engagement based on the article that I wrote is very low. But with these evergreen pieces of content, I get tremendous amount of value from it, where I can take that piece of content and tweet out about planting Bitcoin two years later, and it's still very, very relevant. That was very intentional because I only have a certain amount of time. I've got a full-time job and I want to make sure that my content has a very high ROI. So yeah, you know, well, there's another side to this as well, which is that if you don't cover really, you know, hot or trending topics that you do fall, you do run a risk that it won't ride a wave. So there is a possibility that very fresh content that's only relevant for a short period of time 
could get an enormous amount of engagement immediately. And then longer term, it, that would fade away. So in the long term, that actually might get more engagement than an evergreen piece of content would over the course of like a few years. But uh, that's a really hard calculation to do. And, and that's just more of a subjective thing that each content creator has to think about. Yeah. So do you approach content creation a little bit like product creation? Because they seem to have some parallels here. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So I think about my personal brand as a product. My content is my product. So it's Dan Held and I'm producing Bitcoin content. And when people you know, think about products, products solve a problem. And when it comes to content, well, content should answer something or explain something or engage someone. And that's how I think about my content strategy is I've covered like some very basic Bitcoin topics like proof of work, Bitcoin's origin story that's planting Bitcoin, Bitcoin's fair launch, and a few other topics. But, you know, with each one of these, I go through and I think about, you know, <laughs> it's kind of funny because at first, this whole content strategy, while it does sound like over time, I made it very, very calculated in terms of like ROI spent, in terms of how I distributed my content. You know, I started an email newsletter. I now distribute content on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I'm starting to post on YouTube. So, you know, this content strategy and my focus on evergreen content was a bit of a, uh, you know, that wasn't intentional right off the bat. It, pretty soon after generating content, though, I wanted to, you know, look at my longer term strategy and figure that out. But my first piece of content, the first one I ever wrote was Hodlers of the Revolutionaries. And I wrote that because of Naval Ravikant's tweet about like hodlers or free riders. And I thought that was just so disingenuous and so off the mark that it triggered me so much that I had to write this piece of content that I felt that Silicon Valley had totally missed the mark on Bitcoin. And I felt like the narrative needed correcting. So this content, in addition to, you know, in terms of being evergreen that generates high return on my time spent, these pieces of content are important fundamental learning blocks that are necessary for Bitcoin hodlers to believe in Bitcoin. And I felt like Bitcoin needed a simple narrative per one of these pieces of per these topics to help Bitcoiners, you know, build their own trust and belief in Bitcoin. Like back when I wrote Bitcoin's distribution was fine. I wrote that because the narrative at the time was that Bitcoin distribution was a stealth mine or a pre-mine. And I was like, this is bullshit. It's not a pre-mine or a stealth mine. Satoshi took every step possible to make sure that Bitcoin's launch was intentional, like intentionally fair. And so it was, I wrote some of these to dismiss FUD too. You know, for me, it was highly annoying to see these narratives that were completely false propagated by folks in the Ethereum community and other communities. Uh, same with proof of work is efficient. Back in 2018, that was still a popular narrative that proof of work is really wasteful. And, you know, I'm not sure if this is me being a little cocky, but I do think proof of work is efficient did fundamentally change the narrative in the space, at least in some part, to where now. I haven't really heard that proof of work is inefficient or like proof of work is like boiling the oceans. Like I haven't heard that narrative really propagated inside the crypto community for a while now. Like it pops up once in a while, but it's not used as like a piece of FUD anymore. Mm. Yeah, that might have something to do with Ethereum taking forever to move to proof of stake. But I'm sure <laughs> we would hear that. So let's move on to something a little more controversial, because this is something that we've heard a lot about in Silicon Valley, and that's growth hacking. And this is something that some people consider as a little bit immoral. Can you tell us what growth hacking is and your experience with it? Yeah, so the term growth hacking became popular in Silicon Valley, I think about like 10 years ago. And the fundamental premise is that you are trying to 
find a loophole or find some way to some really clever, very, very unique, typically a one-off style event to create new customers or find new customers or retain customers. So it's a, here's a couple examples for Airbnb when they first launched. Well, how did they get the awareness out of Airbnb? Well, what they did is they posted on Craigslist. <laughs> they posted Airbnb listings on Craigslist, which is a violation of Craigslist terms of service. But that really worked well to get them some initial, to sap some of that initial marketplace away from Craigslist. So that would be an example of a growth hack. You've got Facebook whenever, this is a very big growth hack. Typically growth hacks are more small startup stage level ways to create attention and acquire customers. But Facebook mimicked all of the functionality of Snapchat and the Instagram product with their Instagram stories. And that dramatically shifted the daily active user numbers for Snapchat. I mean, Instagram effectively beat Snapchat at those ephemeral stories. And so that was a really critical moment where I'd say like Facebook did a fast follow, kind of just like quick growth hack there to like see if it would work. And then with some of my own products, with my own experience, I picked up something called App Store Optimization. And this is what I did at Uber at scale for Uber Rider, which is the app that you call Uber, Uber Eats, and Uber Driver in every country in the world. So what I would do is, for example, I learned this back in 2013 with Zero Block, the first product I made. And I wanted to tell people about Zero Block. I was like, this is a great product. It solves a problem. But no one was going to find this product if I didn't figure out a way to get it in front of my potential customers. So I did that a couple different ways. At the May 2013 San Jose Bitcoin conference, I cold pitched it in person to at least 50 people. I went through and as I met people, I go, hey, what app do you use to check the price of Bitcoin on your phone? And then I would show them zero block. But that wasn't very scalable. I only got like 50 installs that day. There's actually a few people who will bring up that story, by the way. And some of the old timers will be like, oh, yeah, I remember when Dan cold pitched me zero block. But uh, so that isn't a scalable way to raise awareness of my product. And we don't have any money, right? So what we had to do is I figured out how to optimize my app store page for zero block to where we ranked number two for the keyword Bitcoin. So when you search mm -hmm. Bitcoin in the app store, we ranked number two. Well, that got us hundreds of installs a day. And that was a huge breakthrough. So that's an example of a growth hack is I figured out a way to optimize the title of the app with my keyword placement alongside some other little tips and tricks to surface my product in front of my potential customers. And it worked. That's an example of a growth hack in the crypto space and gave you some examples in the traditional space. And I think, you know, fundamentally what growth hacking means is like, you're just not playing by, you know, hard fixed rules of like, I have to spend $10 million in marketing to acquire customers. You're like, I have $0 to spend <laughs> and I'm going to do anything I can. I would consider, you know, things that are safe, uh, like there's different degrees of growth hacking. So what I described with App Store Optimization is a very, I would consider white hat growth hack. And then there's the black hat or gray hat growth hacks, which are a little bit more unsavory. And for example, LinkedIn, LinkedIn would spam your email contacts without your permission and spam all of your LinkedIn, all of your email contacts and go, Hey, check out LinkedIn. I would consider that gray or black hat. I don't believe in, you know, auto executing things on users behalf without them fundamentally like consenting to that. So, but LinkedIn won. It's a shitty product. I mean, none of us love LinkedIn, right? <laughs> but, mm -hmm. it, but it won. And so my argument and what I brought up that was a bit controversial was that for Bitcoiners, 
we should constantly think about ways to surface Bitcoin in front of our potential new Bitcoiners, our audience of, of no coiners or pre-coiners and get the word of Bitcoin out there. And a lot of Bitcoiners are like, well, you know, I consider anything other than a blog post to be unethical. And I'm like, well, okay. So for example, like different folks on Twitter have used follow and unfollow bots. Mm-hmm. And so what that does is on Twitter, it'll, you know, there's a bot that it'll follow you. And what you hope is that, so say if it follows me, I'm like, oh, Jimmy Song followed me. This is really cool. And then I'll follow you back. So that's what the bot does. It doesn't force anyone to do anything. I mean, it's just a tap on your shoulder. And it's like, hey, hey, Dan, Jimmy followed you. And I'm like, oh, cool. And then some percentage of those folks will follow Jimmy back. Some Bitcoiners perceive that as unethical. And I'm like, I don't know why it would be. If I wear a sign around my body and walk around Las Vegas that says buy Bitcoin, like, is that unethical? Like, did anyone looking at, like, did anyone? Well, I mean, that does that violate it? Twitter terms of service or something? I don't know if you're allowed to at least execute an auto script to do that, but that might be their argument. I don't know. Sure. But terms of service violations are somewhat arbitrary. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I see a bunch of libertarians get banned on Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> does that make like Twitter and Facebook and other channels are now arbitrarily deciding what content is valid or not, or what content is true? or what is or isn't fake news. And so I don't perceive a terms of service violation as like something that's like fundamentally unethical. You certainly run the risk of getting kicked off a platform. But yeah, you know, with the follow unfollow thing, it's kind of funny because it's like, well, what if you just manually followed 100 people a day? Like, Mm. is that unethical? I don't know. Mm. So the scripted aspect of it just makes it a little less humane. Like you're not really developing an emotional connection with an individual. But, you know, for Twitter, I'm not sure if, for them, I think like as long as you're not, you know, and then if you look at a lot of accounts on Twitter, they've got fake followers and this is pretty systemic just in Twitter in general. You know, you can run Twitter audit, which like edits, it like audits the follower count of someone and it tells you how many fake followers they have. People can't control that. Like, for example, Vitalik has a ton of fake followers, but I'm sure Andreas would as well. Not because they bought fake followers, but just because there's so many bots on Twitter. Mm. So, you know, parsing out organic versus inorganic sort of engagement is kind of tricky to do to begin with. You know, there's been all sorts of like famous marketing efforts that have been done over the years where a company will do something way out of scope of the traditional marketing sphere. Well, they'll do something really wild that you notice, you know, and then you'll be like, oh, well, that was a really clever advertisement. Typically, they're doing something that other people might not consider okay or cool. (laughs) Like they're trying to pushing the boundaries because no one else did that before. So yeah, I think the idea of like what is ethical or unethical or gray hat or black hat is a really subjective bar. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners simply have like, I guess, a very high standard for what content should be that isn't or like what advertising methods or marketing methods should be used. I think it's funny though, because like Fiat has won given like an extremely, Fiat has won for 50 years given an extremely false and immoral narrative. Mm. But it doesn't matter, right? They won. They won over the gold bugs. So <laughs> congratulations, you played ethically and you lost. Mm. You know, like, well, like are all wars won by ethic? Like, what is ethical in war? Like, all is fair in love and war, right? Like, with war, like, is dropping an atomic bomb ethical? I don't know. But did America win? Yes. Mm. <laughs> so, like, what are you going to do? Like, so are you willing to, if Bitcoin loses, but then, you know, you kept your your subjective like integrity by just publishing blog posts, like cool. 
<laughs> Congratulations. Well, let me ask it this way. What would crossing the line be for you? Like, where do you go from gray hat to black hat where that you just go, okay, that's not something I would ever do? Yeah, that's a good question. I think like I would never, you know, without users opting into like me sending them an email, I don't think I would blast them with like an email. That's something I would consider non-consensual. You know, an email is something that in that case, I would have like had to acquire that without their permission and they haven't opted in and stuff like that versus like Twitter or Facebook, which the algorithm surfaces my content or they're freely available to be connected with. So I'd consider that to be pretty funky. You know, if there was like, if you paid off like an employee at one of these companies to perform something for you, let's say you paid off for someone to tweak the algorithm that would make your content more visible. And that was done, you know, outside the scope of what the company typically allows. Like this was like an employee that you paid off internally versus like paying the company a formal amount of like via a contract. You know, I would consider that pretty unethical. You know, if there was an expectation of privacy somewhere and you scraped that content and then sold that off or repurposed it for XYZ sort of function, then I would consider that to be an unethical behavior. Yeah. So those would be like examples of what I would consider like or beyond the scope of something I would consider to be ethical. Yeah. Speaking of sort of unethical marketing, for me, the big unethical marketing game has really been played in the altcoin space. I don't know what you think of sort of their efforts, but how would you analyze that? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And when Bitcoiners bring up like, oh, we don't need to, and I'm not saying that we have to engage in anything that I would consider unethical or even gray or black hat. I'm just making Bitcoiners aware of what that this exists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, hey, by the way, guys, we're fighting a war and these other guys are using these tools. I'm not saying that we have to use them. I'm just saying like, just FYI, check it out. Like check out like what they're doing and be aware that they're doing it. With these altcoins, I mean, Ripple, <laughs> Ripple is still around, right? Like, and, you know, I would say the altcoins have fully demonstrated that altcoin marketing works. A lot of them lack the fundamentals of really having a unique value prop that would solve a problem for customers or solve a problem for protocol users. And despite that, their marketing efforts have, you know, have essentially ensured that they've existed for a very long time and their market caps are still in the billions. So if you want any evidence that like pure marketing plays work or that Bitcoin needs some form of marketing, which we all do when we talk marketing Bitcoin, by the way, is talking about Bitcoin. So I think a lot of Bitcoiners also didn't understand that like Bitcoin marketing is just talking about Bitcoin. If you bring up Bitcoin to your parents, that's Bitcoin marketing because that's called word of mouth marketing. So when it comes to like altcoins marketing, they have validated 100% that marketing works. Yeah, especially ICOs now, like all of these weird DeFi yield farming tokens named after food for some reason. What do you think that they're doing that you consider unethical? I would say if you are describing your product with a, a product or protocol, so product would be like, you know, the Uber product or Kraken or protocol being Bitcoin, Stellar, Ripple, whatever. If you describe that or you convey that the product does something that it does not do, I would consider that to be very unethical behavior. Like if I sell you something, like if I sold you a car and then I give you a cardboard box instead, that's very unethical. I mean, that's fraud. So I would say that, you know, uh, when it comes to protocols, the ones I would consider doing unethical things would be ones that are championing different value props of their protocol that 
essentially are false. Like for example, if they talk about higher transaction throughput, but don't bring up the caveat that this increases centralization, you know, they are espousing these value props without giving caveats or proper disclosures. And I think that, you know, that goes down a, a somewhat unethical path. Now, you could make a similar argument for Bitcoin where if I speak very prominently and, and very strongly about how Bitcoin is going to change the world and how I think it's going to go to the moon, well, if Bitcoin does go to zero, what does that make me look like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, conversely, I think like, I do believe that Bitcoin is the only crypto asset that really, really matters fundamentally. I've been a Bitcoiner for eight years. Like I'm going to be a Bitcoiner for the rest of my life. Like Bitcoin is, this is the whole reason why we're here. Blockchain was built to build Bitcoin. So with these other protocols, they're trying to come up with different variations of narratives. And I've mentioned this before, which is that like the 2017 ICO bubble was essentially a Black Scholes model, which is a term in finance for like a random walk, a random walk of all potential narratives you could possibly imagine. Like Uber on the blockchain, everything on the blockchain, oysters on the blockchain, like every possible way you could like sell a blockchain. That's what ICOs were. They were narratives that were appended to blockchain technology. And I think 99.9% of those were done in a very dishonest manner. So, you know, I would consider most of that marketing and that space to be highly tied to, you know, you know, make the number go up. We do the same with Bitcoin, but Bitcoin fundamentally solves a problem. Bitcoin solved the problem of trust with our financial system through the creation of the best sound money we've ever seen. So espousing the virtues of that, I think is very moral. I think that, you know, I think anyone listening to this is probably a Bitcoiner already. But, you know, that's where I think talking about Bitcoin, uh, because it solves a problem, because it has solved a problem, uh, because it has had an ethical launch, which ensures that espousing virtues of the coin means that the distribution throughout the process has been fair versus espousing the virtues of the coin post, you know, pre-mine. I think that gives us a good reason to look at Bitcoin marketing and consider that to be much more ethical than other coins. Mm-hmm. Well, how does all of this altcoin mania end? Do you think it can be sustained more or less by pure marketing, which is, I think, what you said, that's what they are. They're creatures of marketing and they've sustained themselves through marketing. How long can this go on? I think as long as there's a willing buyer, right? <laughs> like I've seen 10,000 cryptocurrencies come and go mm-hmm. in eight years. I've seen all sorts of, I mean, it was funny because I actually mined PrimeCoin. I mined a whole block of Prime Coin the first day it came out. I don't know if you remember Prime Coin, but yeah, the Prime numbers. Yeah, <laughs> it was doing something useful with the proof of work. This is before a fully grokked proof of work, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, well, it's doing something useful." I'm like, "Yeah, f- Prime numbers is much more useful than just like, you know, f- <laughs> finding random nonces." But yeah, later on, I'd go formalize more formally, like develop a deeper understanding of Bitcoin's proof of work and why it's not useful to have two things that proof of work accomplishes. And so, you know, I think like, but it was interesting to at least to have explored that path. Now, did I buy Prime Coin? No, I just mined it. I was like, sure, I'm just going to mine it uh, and see what happens. But yeah, over time, as you see everything that doesn't work, it keeps bringing me back to Bitcoin where I'm like, okay, we've tried everything. I mean, we've tried so many different variations. And then you look at Bitcoin and you're like, wow, like it's such a testament to how perfect Bitcoin was created, like how perfectly it was created and launched. And I'm not even sure if you could do that again. Uh, Nick Carter and I have talked about this, which is that, you know, 
with the inception of Bitcoin, there was a moment where no one had the expectation of price appreciation. No one mined Bitcoin coins at the time with like an immediate expectation of profit. Bitcoin didn't have a price for a year and a half. They were essentially worthless until the Laszlo transaction. And so that's where I think like a lot of people, like you can't, you know, with, you remember Grin? Man, Grin seems like yeah. forever ago. That was like a year and a half ago. <laughs> but with Grin, Grin's whole premise was like, this is a fair launch. But if investors are anticipating the coins having value, then it won't be fair. And so you really can't replicate that experience again. And, and I think all the parameters of Bitcoin, while at first, you know, and, and this is where the tech people just don't get it. In tech, the first iteration is never the best one. Like we're always building, you're an engineer, you know, mm -hmm. they're always pushing out new code. We're always fixing bugs. And with Bitcoin, Bitcoin wasn't 100% perfect day one in terms of like there were bugs found, but the core fundamental game theory, monetary policy, et cetera, all had been constructed near perfectly day one, which was incredible. And I think as these alts continue to launch and, and iterate on different variations of how to use blockchain technology, the ones that fail, which is a majority of them, or I mean, fail is a so somewhat subjective term, like can a blockchain fail? I guess it can fail when like no one buys or sells it anymore and no one's running it, no one's mining it, right? Mm. These things are like viruses, right? They're like super hard to kill. But with Bitcoin, I just see every single new coin that comes out to reinforce, it simply reinforces why Bitcoin's valuable. Like every single coin that fails, I'm like, yep, there's an experiment that failed. I failed and demonstrated that Bitcoin is valuable. Like same with Bitcoin Cash. And Bitcoin Cash, we could largely say has failed. And that demonstrates why, you know, forks don't work. Like hard forks don't work in terms of like a governance mechanism. I live by the fork, die by the fork, right? Like now. You know, they're dying by the fork right now. Yeah. 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 So that's, I think alts are interesting in that aspect. They're sort of experiments to continually validate that Bitcoin is correct. You know, I'm personally not going to go sell you on XYZ coin. I think if you want to go buy something, that's cool. For me, I think Bitcoin is the number one asset in this space in terms of the risk-adjusted ROI. Sure, you can pick another coin that'll 10x, 100x in a certain time period, but Bitcoin over time, given the risk profile and the return per unit of risk, is your most phenomenal investment to make in this space. Yeah, that's interesting because at least for me, it's not about the technical iteration. I mean, Satoshi could have picked five minutes or 30 minutes per block and whatever it was, I think it still would have won. The big features that he put in there, I think were kind of, that were perfect are the 21 million limit, the difficulty adjustment algorithm. And, you know, there weren't obvious inflation bugs, although eh, there were a couple, which we were able to fix before they got too bad or they got exploited. So in that sense, for me, like it's not necessarily that there were all these like perfectly tuned parameters. It was just that it was there first and it also had this weird situation where Satoshi left and we had this uh, decentralized everything, right? Decentralized nodes and decentralized miners and decentralized coders. And that gave it this quality that all coins can't really match. Like, would you agree that that would be another way to think about this? Or, I mean, are there additional things that you think Satoshi got perfectly right that maybe, you know, all coins could possibly improve on? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's both the monetary aspects, but like that's woven into the technical aspects as well. 
So for example, the block reward, the block reward is comprised of the block subsidy, the newly minted Bitcoins plus transaction fees. And Satoshi architected this very early on. And, you know, he didn't know how this was all going to develop, but he hypothesized that as the block subsidy decreases, that transaction fees will compensate. And that's a pretty big game theoretic design decision. Like he's hoping that Bitcoin really goes from zero to popular in a fast manner. And so there's a couple different things to think about here when analyzing this decision. One is that he's got a monetary policy with a fixed supply. That's good because it reduces political attack vectors and because choosing an inflation rate is impossible, which Satoshi talks about. I think he even cracks a joke when he mentions it, but I'm a little bit interpreting where he goes, if we wanted to trust someone to (laughs) tell us the real world value of things, which I think he's joking (laughs) because it's obvious that trust is the problem that he's solving here. So the 21 million hard cap is important for those parameters, but then you have the issuance schedule. So how are those 21 million Bitcoins issued over time? Tell what's it like 2130 or so when all Bitcoins will be issued. And so how do you go about distributing those coins? So he could have chosen a continuous method where it'd be a more smooth supply issuance curve, but instead he chose the halving. So every four years, the amount of newly coins minted, the block subsidy decreases in half at that specific moment after 120,000 blocks. And so is it 120,000 or 210? I forget. It's 210. But I mean, as a coder, I know exactly why he did it that way. It's because it's a right shift and that's a much easier and simpler way to ensure a 21 million limit than to try to figure out a continuous submission. I think Monero has something like that. It's a really complicated function and like doing the math and floating point and all that is hard. Yeah, there's technical aspects to this as well, but why not two years or one year? Why four or why not 10? You know, these are really interesting design decisions that he made, and he really doesn't give us much information about it. So it could have been coincidence. It could have been accidental. But I would have to believe that four years seems to be, if I were to pick an issuance schedule, like that seems to be a good time. Four years is enough time for, you know, Satoshi hypothesized that bubbles would exist. And he understood human psychology and human behavior really intimately. So I would have to assume that he thought about, okay, should it be one, two, three, four, five, ten years? Four is a pretty good amount of time. It's how much time we give a president to make an impact in the United States. Four years is typically how long it takes to like get a company off the ground and start to get some traction. So, you know, if there were to be speculative bubbles, you'd have these bubbles and you'd have the ability for companies to be created, funded, and run and built in four years. If you had having cycles occur every year, that's really, really intense and really, really fast. So I would say like one year would have been incorrect. 10 years probably would have been incorrect. So that seems like a really interesting design decision. But the design decision for that doesn't just influence like the market cycles of Bitcoin, but it also influences the 21 million hard cap, right? So like long-term, as these new coins are being issued in a decreasing rate, we have the problem of, will transaction fees compensate? And, you know, Satoshi didn't know if there would be a lot of transactions or a little, and he even jokes about that where he's like, because someone was like, well, what'll happen when all the, when the subsidy runs out? Well, he, and he goes, well, there's either going to be a lot of transactions or none. <laughs> right. Either Bitcoin will have succeeded as a global world reserve currency, a global sound money, or no, it will have never been adopted, which is a really interesting way to think about it from his perspective. Like he's sort of going for gold, all, all puns mm-hmm. intended, right? Mm-hmm. Can I say something about that? Because at least from my examination of the code, it's literally every 210,000 blocks. And that happens to be because... million minutes 
is almost exactly four years. It's not quite four years. It's like 3.996 or something like that. Sure, sure. But numerologically, that would make sense because I think he already wanted 21 million as the limit for some reason. It might be like half of 42 from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or something. But I, I don't know. It seems like it's something that like sort of happened to fit and he was like, oh, okay, yeah, let's go with this. And then, you know, there's 50 per on the first one, 25 and a half. And that asymptotically goes to 100, 100 times 210,000 is 21 million. That's how we get that number. So in that sense, it's like, you know, he just might've been aiming for something and not necessarily saying, oh, okay, well, one year's is wrong. 10 years is wrong. Let's go with something. I mean, I agree that it seemed to have turned out really great, but I don't know. I'm not sure I buy that he foresaw that when he was creating it, because that would be pretty prescient. I mean, he considered many, many other factors. Like mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's like analyzing like which hashing algorithm he chose. You know, he's thinking really deeply about, you know, this. Like I said, when he thought about the game theory behind the block reward, he's mm-hmm. like, well, there's going to be a lot of transactions or a little. I mean, that's basically it, though. Like mm-hmm. that shows that he extrapolated all the way out on the curve of like what Bitcoin could become and brought it back to now and was like, well, that's all I have to go with. I mean, it's either it succeeds or it doesn't. And same with when Satoshi talked about Bitcoin having these intense speculative bubbles, he hypothesized that would happen before Bitcoin even was worth a penny. Mm. So, you know, he fundamentally understood human behavior. He understood how humans thought and how they would might interpret or behave with his game theory. I mean, Bitcoin is really just a game theory wrapped up in a code. Like it incentivizes participants to adhere to a certain social consensus that is embedded in that code or the code, you know, the social consensus is essentially us buying into those rules that have been baked into that code. I mean, he hypothesized that the rules that he baked would work at scale. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't want to get too in the weeds of like <laughs> interpreting what Satoshi did, but I certainly think a lot of it was intentional. And when you try to like pick it apart, it, it's pretty incredible how intricate everything was. I, it's sort of like a perfect rocket launch. Like all it takes is one little variable to be off and a rocket would explode on the launch pad. And we've seen all these alts demonstrate that, like little errors causing these huge issues. And we even saw like Jeff Garzik, the off by uh, one, was it? Was yeah. off by, <laughs> off by <laughs> one error, yeah. Well, off by one error. I mean, that's exactly, you know, like we, of course there was like the early inflation bug and other issues that were resolved, but I don't know. I'm just always amazed by like how resilient Bitcoin has been and how long it survived getting and how right was Satoshi was with the design decisions that he made, whether those were intentional or, or by mistake, I'm, you know, we'll never fully know. Mm. Well, what are your long-term goals in terms of marketing for Bitcoin? I would say, you know, things like this week with uh, Michael Saylor, with, that was pretty cool in terms of hearing him talk about how my you know, distillation of Bitcoin's narrative was influential to him. That kind of made my year, you know, things like that. Really <laughs> made, I mean, you know, it's hard to, as you mentioned before, it's like, okay, when I talk about, you know, if you, if you do a podcast on full nodes, well, how many people went in and ran a full node after? It's really tough to know. So this was a good, you know, one-off story at, at size, you know, 400 million is a substantial amount of Bitcoin that, you know, really reinforced that I'm making a difference. So that, that felt cool. My goals for marketing Bitcoin this year are more video content. I think video is going to be huge today. I did my first live stream, which I was a little bit nervous about mm-hmm. doing. I'm pushing this to YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter at the same time. 
and it's live. So you can't really make a mistake. I think video is really big because it's easy to develop empathy with a face versus text or audio. You can also distribute video content across any platform and video content is passive. So I don't necessarily have to engage. When I go read an article, I have to choose to read versus a video or the video just is like pushed to me. It's myself talking about a Bitcoin topic and also it's visually stimulating. So it's much more interesting than text. I think Bitcoin, there's a lot of great thinkers and a lot of my learning you know, it's funny because in my first couple articles that I write, planting Bitcoin, followers of the revolutionaries, proof of work is efficient. I write like, I'm like, look, I'm not really saying anything new here. I'm just rebundling all these other Bitcoiners' thoughts into a more distilled package. I felt almost disingenuine <laughs> to even mm-hmm. say this was original thought, but a lot of thought is just merely built on top of others. Like you take someone who wrote some really great content on proof of work and you make it much more simple, or you combine that piece of content and you put it into a thread where there's more continuity, where it makes more sense. There's more context. There's an easier understanding of what you're trying to convey. And so for me, I think video is going to be huge. Video allows you to convey a high throughput in terms of like data density of information in a very, very compelling manner. So I could do data visualizations. I can do clips from movies. I can do animations. I can do all sorts of different things in video that you just can't do in an article. And so I would, I know with the Bitcoin community that most folks do, they do podcasts and articles. And I think there's a big opportunity to talk about Bitcoin on YouTube to propagate the narrative of why Bitcoin matters uh, to folks who want more of that visually stimulating content. And if I'm wrong, then no one will engage with it. (laughs) If I'm right, then they will. And I hope more Bitcoiners, if I get engagement, I hope more Bitcoiners come over and check it out. I do want to give a shout out to BTC Sessions. He's got a great YouTube channel. Definitely recommend that you go and subscribe to that. He also helped me get me set up on live streaming. Definitely was really cool of him to show me how it all works. It's somewhat technical. But yeah, I think that video is going to be a huge part of my personal brand this year. I'm working on a really, really exciting video. So what I'll do is once a week, I'm going to do a live stream where I'm going to hop on and talk about like recent trending topics. But then I'm going to do a once a month very, very special piece of content. And these will be my more evergreen pieces, just like my blog posts, but in visually compelling manner. So it'll be me talking about like proof of work with data visualizations that I'm working on with designers to distill proof of work down to like very, very simple formats, you know, eight to 12 minutes, short videos covering the fundamentals of Bitcoin. What is money? How does proof of work work? You know, all these sort of things, but this isn't going to be your videos where they're like, okay, here's how Bitcoin mining works. And they're like, so first we start talking about hashing. I'm like, <laughs> no, people don't know what that is. Let's like skip over that. If you want to, uh, you know, listen or watch more technical content, there's a bunch of great content creators who do that. I'm going to keep it as the most simple narrative as possible. So I'm really excited for that. I think, you know, and I'm curious to see what the community feels, but I'm feeling really good about my first one, which is what is money? It really dives in deep to like, you know, people forget that when we talk about Bitcoin, they don't, most people don't, like most people on the street that you talk to about Bitcoin, they don't understand that there's a problem with their money. You have to first start with a problem if you want to sell them a solution. And so that's what this does is it's, it's the clip you can hand to any family member. It's the clip you can hand to anyone you meet. And it should at least open up their mind to Bitcoin at a very, very high level. So I think it does a really great job of that. Like I splice in movie clips, like mainstream movies into it. It's got a great soundtrack, like great visualizations. So 
we'll see if people like it. I'm stoked about it. It's been fun to work on and it's going to come out in the next like three weeks or so. Okay. Sounds great. And where can people find you? Yeah. So my, the primary spot where people engage with me is on Twitter. Uh, so it's Dan Held on Twitter. And I would say follow my YouTube channel as well. If you want, you know, I haven't put up a ton of content yet. A lot of my content is older. Uh, it's called the Hoddle with Heddle show that I used to do block TV. But yeah, if you want to stay up to date with my video content, you're going to see it on Twitter, but the full videos will be on YouTube and I'm Dan Held on YouTube as well. All right. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. It's uh, always fun just sort of like bouncing ideas back and forth with you. So appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Jimmy. And man, I'm looking forward to coming to Texas sometime and grabbing some barbecue. It's, I've been away from the homeland too long. You really have. You really, you missed the whole hat thing, man. You I, thing. <laughs> I almost, I was in Photoshop and I almost put like a fake hat on me because I felt left out. <laughs> and I was like, man, I got to get a real cowboy hat. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good story. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Dan can be found at Dan Held on Twitter and danheld.com. Until next time, fiat the lenda est.